there was a time and place that this university was feared. My goal as the head football coach at the University of Tennessee it is to get us back to that. That's what she said. Good morning, afternoon, evening. It's back. Brunch time, lunch time, whatever time of day it happens to be, wherever you are, it's the right time for the Go Vols 24-7 podcast. Time. We'll go with it. We'll go with it. Wes Rucker, Ryan Callahan, Patrick Brown coming to you from Fort Rucker Studio. Recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. Probably coming to you on a Thursday morning. So happy Thursday morning out there. Hope it's still every bit as wonderful as it is right now in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's hot outside today. It's it, awesome, isn't it? It's weird, but I love it. I took the dog on a walk yesterday, and I was, I was sweating profusely. It's magnificent. I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm going to apologize for my voice being worse than it normally is, which is usually pretty bad. It's pretty grating, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty pretty grating, and right now it's even worse because uh, I have avian bird SARS. Hate it when that happens. Yeah. Been do, they have a, do they have a... Do they have a... What's the word I'm thinking of? I went vaccine? To, I went yes, to, vaccine. That's what, Do uh, they have one of those for that? I went to WebMD and put in these uh, symptoms, and they said, sorry, you're going to die. So... That's unfortunate, but in the it's, meantime... At least you don't have, like, a two-basketball-road-game swing to the Mississippi schools coming up, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Poor Grant Ramey. We go to Mississippi. Are y'all staying, or are y'all coming back? No, no, this is the best part. <laughs> if you do die, I'll avenge your death and start a thread on the checkerboard for people to complain. I like it. I like it. Because what we're doing is we're going, going on Friday night over to Oxford. Are you staying in Oxford? Uh, somewhere around there, probably, because the game is... Not saying in Memphis? The game's an early game on Saturday. Grant refuses to go back to Memphis, right? Grant oh. is an honorary Memphian, unlike Wes, who had his <laughs> his honorary Memphian status revoked by me this week. Well, the bottom line is this, guys. Ryan is ineligible to be an honorary Memphian. The bottom line is this. Uh, I was right and not wrong in that argument, but <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I love this Memphis. This is why you got it revoked. I'm a friend of Memphis. This state is my state. From, from sea to shining sea... It's just been revoked. What would you call that? From the Mississippi he didn't really to the Smoky over Mountains? Either, the line. I don't know. It kind of sounds like a country music song. Either way, <laughs> the bottom line is Ramey and I are going to Mississippi on Friday night. That game's Saturday. So we'll cover that game, then come on back to Knoxville probably after that game because that's what we do is we listen to podcasts and satellite radios and podcasts, and, and we go really, really, really far. That's what we do. We drive in the car. That's what our basketball season is like, basically. So you're you're, you're going on two separate trips to Mississippi. Yeah, and then we're coming back Saturday night. And then I suppose we go back on, yeah, we'll probably go back on Tuesday morning to Starkville. As long as you bring back some Gibsons on your way back through Memphis. Well, we were talking about it. If this had been just the opposite way, you're not allowed to go to Gibsons. I'm going to call them and tell them not to let you in the door. There's a really there's a place, and, and you're gonna you're gonna laugh at this. There's a really good brunch place in Starkville, Mississippi, that Ramey and I have been to, and it is some really good chicken and waffles. And that place, hopefully, it's open for dinner also, so we can go before the Tennessee State game there in Starkville. So we'll be doing that over the weekend. Wes has brunch more often than Tennessee has a new football coach. Well, I, he's I, he is our uh, Go Balls twenty four seven resident brunch expert. See, I used to be so anti brunch because I think this now brunch, you've been domestic. This sort of brunch phenomenon thing started. Um, you know, things they start in bigger cities and then they go down to smaller cities. And for a few years there, where my fiance lived in DC, and so basically I would spend the summers mostly up there, and she would spend football and basketball seasons mostly down here, and that's how we made it work. And a bunch of her friends would go to brunch every Saturday and Sunday, and even the guys would sometimes go. And I was like, guys. I don't ever want to talk to another guy and tell him, hey, you want to go to brunch? And they were like, no, you're just, you're just a, you got a provincial mindset. You don't understand it. And I said, no, you guys are just sissies. And then I kept going to brunch more and more. And I was like, wait a minute, you get some of the best breakfast foods, the best lunch foods, and you day drink all at the same time. Wow, this is awesome. So now I'm very decidedly, Pro brunch. 
Well, now that we've covered all that. Now that we've covered all that. That's uh, what you were really tuning into this podcast for. I was, I was trying to give you a segue with the first year with the reference to Tennessee always having new football coaches. Dude, I am so full of cold medicine right now that I yeah. don't even know what planet I'm on. But thankfully, I write down right here, I write down what we're going to talk about in these podcasts. And in this one, we're going to be talking about expectations for year one of Tennessee football under Jeremy Pruitt. Which this I, is, I feel like we were just discussing this a few years ago because we were, but I guess it's been five years at least. That's that's a pretty long time by Tennessee standards lately. But that's like a century in Tennessee football standards, right there. That's that's that seems about right. That's that's pretty good. We should explain the background for this because we could talk about expectations for the first season for the next seven months. Yeah, we, uh, Wes, you did a, a a look at some of the SEC's current coaches and how they did in their first and second years, and how the, the programs that they took over did the year before they got there. You're right, I did that. It was a very good piece, I thought. Well, I don't know, although I've never heard the play known by everyone else as the kick six. I've never heard it described as, what did you call it? What do you, Alabama fans what call it. What do you it? claim that Alabama fans call it? The disaster in the, the, disaster in the pasture. Have you ever heard of that, Ryan? Uh, maybe once, probably from him. I've never heard it called that. The, the only the thing I've heard six, that play yeah. called is the kick six. Same I, here. I heard Alabama fans call it that, and I was like, that's one of the funnier things I've ever heard. It depends on which side you're looking at it from. Disaster is looking at it from an Alabama perspective. Well, see, Auburn fans won the game, so I think they, you know, it's like if Alabama fans want to make fun of them, it's like Auburn still won the game, so it's like, still like, okay, well, whatever. We still won the game, so it's funny. Just like Notre Dame fans didn't call it the miracle at South Bend. <laughs> yeah, they probably called it something else. They probably called it that dude blocked a field goal with his butt. Yeah, the, but why would you? If the, it was butt, a, the butt block. Game. If it was if it was a play that was so like detrimental to you, why would you give a name to it? Why would you right. glorify it with a name? Uh, you call it that play, that play, that day, that, that game. game. Well, the bottom line is, wrote a story looking at how SEC coaches who have been at their programs for at least two seasons, how they have done relative to what they inherited and how they did in year one and how they did in year two and did that to kind of show, listen, every situation is not, I mean, every situation is unique. Everyone, every situation, every program is its own beautiful little snowflake. Okay. It's different from everything else. Uh, So you can't really compare like for like to every situation. But if you look, my argument was that if you look across a full spectrum uh, of SEC teams, what a coach walked into how things went in year one and year two, that gives you a little bit of a decent barometer as to where things can go. And, and here's the good news, guys. Of all those programs, I think there were eight of them, I think only one of them was even arguably maybe in a worse position than it was two years before that. So it looks like every program either got significantly better or it got at least a little bit better. And in some situations, it took to year three. But uh, most cases, it did take to year two. Uh, There was only one outlier, and I think anyone can remember that one off the top of their head, right? Where the new coach came in and just all of a sudden it was gangbusters and, you know, they go on. That was uh, at Auburn, where Malzahn steps in. Well, so did Nick Saban, too. Well, no, no, Saban. Saban seven and six is first year? Oh, wait, oh, you mean first year, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about just hit the ground running in one year, and I can pull up the exact figures right here, but Auburn in the first year or the last year under Gene Chizik was an abomination. Yeah, what, four and eight or something? Yeah, it was a really, really bad team. It was last place in the SEC, and it go it went from worst to first. Sounds familiar. Kind of like the uh, 1991, I believe it was, Atlanta Braves. Uh, it, it's a really hard thing to do. In the SEC, I don't know if it's ever been done uh, until Auburn had done it. Uh, maybe once back when they played with leather helmets and stuff like that. But it had not been done in a long time. But that was sort of the outlier. When you look at the rest of the teams, it's it's a little bit of a different story. Uh, even situations like where Nick Saban stepped in, you know, they went from – and again, in Alabama's you have to be a little – you have to say, listen, let's just assume – for the sake of argument, the, that the NCAA didn't come in and take those wins away because obviously it came in and took those, situ- those wins away, a lot of them from the last year of Shula, a lot of them from the first year of Saban, uh, even in that year. Uh, so let's just assume for the sake of argument that that didn't happen. If that didn't happen, the year before Saban got there, Alabama was 6-7. and seven. Saban's first season, 
Alabama was seven and six. And can anyone remember what that lot one of those losses was? Southern Miss. No, it was Louisiana Monroe. Oh, that's right, Louisiana Monroe. Louisiana they, Monroe. But they beat the brakes off Tennessee. Yes, too. they did. And then, but that was the high water mark of that season because it sort of fell apart at the seams after that. Uh, that Went team to the started Independence Bowl. Yeah, that, that team started off like four and two, basically, uh, and things were 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 looking pretty good and then it just fell apart there in that last season and then the next season boom 8-0 SEC champions goes to the Sugar Bowl so that's what Alabama did it went from 6-7 and seven to 7-6 seven and six to 12-2 and two. well you just hired an Alabama assistant so clearly that's the model here right? there you go that's the model right there here's the one here what it here is actually a little bit worse Ryan than you even said it was because I would have guessed 4-8 and eight too Auburn was 3-9 and nine wow. in Chiswick's final season 0-8 in the SEC Why'd they fire him, I wonder? <clears throat> yeah, it's like maybe they were like... Well, those... they, they were a bad... Uh, like, 0-8 oh, is bad enough, but they got they got blown out in a bunch of games. They were like, listen, Chiz, we like that, that leather jacket you're wearing, that Auburn leather jacket that he always wore that was actually Chiz. pretty sweet. Uh, but they went from 3-9 and nine in that season to 12-2 and two overall, 7-1 in the SEC, and played for a national they, championship they're, they're, in they're, year one. Their final three games in 2012... 63-21 loss at home to Texas A&M at Johnny Menzel. 38-0 home loss to Georgia. And then 49-0 to Alabama. Yikes. Yikes. Uh, and then that next year, boom. They next, also were insanely lucky that year, though. Well, yeah. I mean, they had the, they had the two memorable plays that but year. But even before that, they had, you know, had a t- close game at Mississippi State. Uh, had a close game with Washington State in their opener. Sure, but some people would say that 98 Tennessee team got lucky, too. I mean, most championship teams get at least one break along the way. That Auburn team got they got two breaks. Got they, a few big breaks. They won a four-point game at Texas A&M, another one-possession game at Ole Miss. They were in a lot of close games, and that's, that's the difference in the SEC is that you're going to play a lot of close games, unless you're Georgia and Alabama where you just blow everybody out. I, I shouldn't say Georgia just yet. Although I think they're, I think we can put them on the same plane as Alabama now, right? Can we? Yeah, and here's what here's what's weird though about that Auburn team. That team, in the one clear exception of a team being just markedly better in year one, the next three years Auburn went twenty three and sixteen overall and eleven and thirteen in the SEC before uh, it came to this season and it started slowly too. And then that makes me think it's a, that was a total fluke. That's what that's what yeah. makes me think. A little bit, yeah. I mean, that's a little bit fluky. That's why we you look at it as uh, I was really bad at statistics class, like in math when we had to take it uh, because I don't. I'm a journalist. I don't. I don't math. Uh, I don't. People don't pay me to math. It is uh, an outlier, is what you would call that. That is the outlier in that in that argument. That's the one that you look at it and go, okay, among these eight, that's that's pretty unique. So, so, but you look you look at what they what they had in that 2013 team. They had three running backs, I think, that are on NFL rosters right now. Yeah. I think it may be even more. Uh, Trey Mason, Corey Grant, Cameron Rogers Payne. I think Ricardo Lewis isn't he in the NFL too. Uh, he was for a while. I don't know if he still is or not. I'm um, not the I NFL mean, expert here. I don't call my – I don't pretend. I'm not really – I've, I've, I've established was, I'm not a math or an NFL expert. I'm really not an expert at anything except for uh, history. And brunch. History, brunch. Soccer. Soccer and uh, video game soccer and, and baseball. Those are like the four to five things that I know a lot about. Those, those are the five things most parents want their kids to be good at, so – yeah, and, and they had Sammy Coates at wide receiver. I mean, they, they had some, like, players that year, too. So And Nick Marshall did a lot of that work. Yeah, and he was he was sort of the difference because Auburn's quarterbacks in, 20, in 2012 uh, were Kyle Frazier, Jonathan Wallace, and Clint Mosley. Which is why that one Auburn <laughs> which season... Which is probably why they were so bad. Which is why that one Auburn season last season didn't make as much sense because Auburn, in the previous two years where it had won the SEC, had just had a stud quarterback who took over the league. You had Newton, and then you had Marshall, and then this season. I mean, their quarterback now, he's a good player. but Jared Stidham. Yeah, he, he's a good player, but he's not, you know, one of those transcendent kind of, you know, running back. But, again, they had, a lot, of, they had a lot of, of talent around him and a really good defense. Too. Yeah, they did. Stidham they might did. be an NFL quarterback, though. No, he's a good player, but, I yeah. mean, he's not like – you didn't look at the league that year and go, wow, that's by far the best player in the league. Like I think you could do with certainly with Newton, who was a transcendent player, if, and and then Marshall when he was clearly I thought the best player in the SEC that season. Obviously, if you're Tennessee, you're hoping for like a Georgia like. You're kind of hoping to do what Georgia just did. Yeah, that's because you're hiring an Alabama defensive coordinator. 
then again, though, Georgia was coming off a 10-win season, right? Well, I was going to go in alphabetical order, but I will Sorry. skip over them. No, 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 no go ahead. Okay. Do, do what you're going to do. No, 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 You had no, Georgia no. at the end, right? Well, no, not Georgia at the end. I mean, it's alphabetical order. Okay, so. fine. If I don't listen, if I don't do it this way, then it won't be done because I will lose track of somebody and we won't talk about a team. Uh, Kentucky, we can breeze over this one really quickly. <laughs> uh, two and ten overall, zero and eight in the SEC in the last year of come play for the Joker, and then year one of Mark come play Stoops. For the Joker. Year one, I looked at this Kentucky one a little bit. That Kentucky team, Stoops' first team was better than Phillips' last team, even though the records were the same. It was a lot more competitive. It was a lot closer. There were a lot more games that could have gone the you know one way or the other. So basically, under Stoops, Kentucky went two and ten overall, zero and eight SEC in in the year before he got there. Two and ten overall, zero and eight. I just remember that in the Kentucky, first season. I just remember that Kentucky team lost to Tennessee, and I think it was Dobbs's like third or fourth start. Seems about right. The only thing I remember from that game. Is that like Jason Kroom had that catch where he like bobbled it three times? And I also remember and he ran by think, the entire Kentucky secondary. And I think Ray John Neal had a long touchdown run, but I wasn't watching it because I was watching the kick six disaster and the whatever you call it. Yeah, because that was I remember that. that. You know, you, you make one joke about Memphis, and all of a sudden this guy becomes a hater over here. <laughs> that that's the kind of game you remember. That's how we roll. You remember watching that happen in the press box, though, even though you were at another game yep. because it was yes. so bizarre and people are reacting in the press you're watching, box. You're watching a game between, what was it, four and seven Tennessee yeah. and two and nine Kentucky. It's that cold. was one of those, uh, I'm only here so I don't get fined games. <laughs> you're, you're, the season's over. You, you know, you're, you're looking forward to your season being over. But here's the good news with that. In year two under Stoops, Kentucky improved to, drum roll please, Five and seven overall, and two and six in the SEC. So it did get better, and then after that, it started making a couple bowl games in a row. So uh, there was a good story there. Kentucky certainly did improve. Uh, here's an interesting one: uh, the Ogre, y'all, y'all football at Orgeron at LSU. This one was a little bit different because he took over four games into a season. A I got a hummer. years ago. You got a hummer. Oh, come on, by Jojo. And the difference here with LSU is the year before. This is in the final season under less miles. LSU was 9-3 overall, 5-3 SEC, or as I like to call it, pretty much every single LSU football season. Uh, year one, uh, that was the one where they went 2-2 two and two under miles and 6-2 and two under Ogre. So they went 8-4 and four overall, 5-3 and three in the SEC in the next year. So it was basically one game worse, but kind of the same. Then the next year, which was last season, Nine and four overall, and six and two in the SEC, or as I like to call it, every single LSU football season. So right there, that LSU program right now is kind of like, kind of like Fulmer was after the national title there for a while. Before things started getting bad, it was kind of like every season. It's almost like Peyton's first, like Peyton's career. Like every season, you're going to be, you know, like that. Basically, that that's what LSU has been. So LSU has not gotten appreciably better or worse. It's just kind of still where it has been. Here's the one Patrick Brown wanted to talk about. Kirby Smart at Georgia, which is if you're Tennessee. What about recruiting, Lane? This is – now, here's the, here's, here's the reason why this is – What about Georgia different. West? What about Georgia West? Here's the difference. In Mark Rick's last season, uh, Georgia went 10-3 and overall and 5-3 and in the SEC, or as I like to call it, every Georgia football season under Mark Rick. 10-3 uh, and and 5-3. and So – that team was not bad. It was just Rick was dismissed because Florida, I mean, Georgia wanted, it just kind of felt like, you know, this is what the program is always going to be. And it said, we want to get better. We want this to change. We want this to become more of the kind of program that it should be. And I don't think they're wrong in that because Georgia has as much upside as any program in college football. So 10-3 and three overall, 5-3 and three in the SEC in the last year under Rick. First year under Kirby Smart, easy to remember this now or easy to forget this now, did not start so great. Uh, and it only went 8-5 and five overall and 4-4 four and four in the SEC. So Georgia definitely got worse in Smart's year, Smart's first year. However, you can make the argument that he's putting in a culture, he's establishing the way things are going to be. So I think we can all agree that that is a possibility when you make a change like that. Georgia uh, wins the SEC wins the college football semifinal game, loses in a thriller to Alabama for the national championship. So if you're looking at, at what could happen or what you want to happen if you're a Tennessee fan, uh, and again, I, I would caution you because 
Kirby Smart took over a team that had just gone ten and three. He took over a ten win football team and won eight games in year one. But uh, Tennessee, uh, if you're looking at uh, maybe the model that you'd like to follow, uh, you would like to do what another Saban defensive coordinator did at Georgia. Yeah, and you, you look back at Georgia's first season with Smart. They had uh, obviously the game to Tennessee that they nearly won. Uh, that that wild game. Then they you know they lose to to Georgia Tech at home. They lose to Vanderbilt at home. Lost to Florida. Um, lost to a lot of teams that if you're Georgia, you just don't want to lose to. Yeah, but then, you know, he, he gets uh, Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle to come back. Yep. Uh, and what I think the biggest thing he did in his second year was that team had an identity. You knew what you were going to get from them. You knew that they were going to run the ball and yep. control the line of scrimmage on both sides. You knew they had a lot of talent in the front seven. And that's how they were going to win games. And, you know, a big what if for Georgia has to be what if Jacob Easton doesn't get hurt. Because, I mean, I, he's he's a good player. Could he have done what Jake Fromm did, which was, I think, he was the good – he was the, the best mix for them because he – Took care of the ball better than yeah. Easton had. Yeah, and so that's why that's why it worked. Plus, the East was down, let's be honest. Georgia's two biggest rivals in its division this past year fired their coaches. True. Before the season was even over. So, that helps, too. Um, when you And the East has been up for grabs, and Tennessee has, you know, under Butch Jones, missed a great opportunity to take hold of the division, obviously. Um, so, I mean, you look back at Georgia, their recruiting classes before Kirby got there were ranked um, sixth, 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 and third. And I'm sure the other one was another top ten class, too. Yeah, so. I mean, he took over one of the premier jobs in college football. Yes. A- at a time when the program was certainly not in a dark place. Yeah, and, and you look at what Jeremy Pruitt's taking over Tennessee's last four classes, including this one, 20th, 17th, 14th, and 4th, but you know, that four, that top five class, half of it's gone already Yep, from 2015. Historically. You, you uh, might have a third of that group still here. Yeah, that, that would be a, uh, you go back and, and look at it in hindsight class, and it's not, clearly not a top five class. And even some of the guys that, that were highly ranked, uh, you know, Killen McKenzie's, Kyle Phillips, Drew Richmond's, they've not played up to that. Yeah. And people will want to compare this situation. I, I think the Alabama comparison comes up a little bit more for Tennessee, but people will try to compare it to, I think a little bit to Georgia just because they're a division rival and because it's recent and because it involves another former Alabama assistant. But that one, it's hard to really compare that with Tennessee's situation because the roster was in such good shape. I mean, it wasn't a team that really needed to rebuild at all. And I think even with the Alabama situation, you're forgetting the fact that that Saban had already won a national championship at LSU and had been a really good coach uh, at Michigan State and helped turn some things around there. So, you know, he and what I mean by that is, he had already made all the mistakes that first-time head coaches make before they learn exactly what they're doing. And you can talk all day long about Pruitt and the sort of if you have if you have to hire an assistant, and I said this too and I still agree with it, if you had to hire an assistant, boy, his resume was as good as any assistant coach in the country. However, I don't care what anyone says, the first time you're a head coach, you make mistakes. These are things that you that come across your desk that have never come across your desk before. And there may have been things where you thought your previous boss, man, I don't know why he did it that way. I'm not going to do it that way. And then you try to do it and you go, oh, wait, he was actually right. You know, there's so many things that you have to worry about with your time management, with running a program, with just logistics of things. There's so many things that you have to you have to do decisions on who gets to leave a program and who doesn't. You know, how do you talk to a kid who's trying to transfer? How do you talk him out of doing that? How do you uh, bench a kid without having him transfer somewhere? There's all sorts of things you have to do that you never had to do before. So and that's probably it something does that, matter. And that's probably something that Kirby Smart had to deal with. Oh, yeah. His first year. I mean, I'm sure Completely there was a, changed that culture. I'm sure there was a learning curve there, because, you know, especially because, you know, the games that they lost, some of those games, Georgia Tech, Vanderbilt, Tennessee, all came down to, like, the very end. I mean, those are close games that – you learn, okay, you can't coach this way in a certain, you know, you, you can't do this in close games. And that's the thing about the SEC is that a lot of times you're going to be playing a lot of close games, and that's where coaching comes in. Whereas uh, you know, it's not always about who has the most talent. Again, if you're Georgia and Alabama, you're playing on a different field in terms of talent well, than everyone else. But, it, it, but the rest of the league is comparable enough to where you're going to be playing a lot of close games, and that's where coaching decisions and how you coach and how you build and construct your team and your program that's that's where all that stuff really and, comes well, in. And I, even I the, even that, the okay. minute stuff like Evan Berry getting returned the kickoff in the final ten seconds of the game, giving Tennessee a chance to set, set up a hell mary, you know things like that. Those are first year mistakes that a head coach makes that maybe a veteran coach handles that situation a little bit differently and says, "Hey, let's keep the ball away from their best player 
uh, at all costs. Yeah, and and I remember that first year Smart was at Georgia because it's so recent. And I, you know, I've been covering the league for a while, so I think we all know people down in Athens, just like we know people different programs across the league. And uh, I just so happened to know some some people who were still in that program, and I remember that transition from Rick to smart was so staggering in terms of the way things were handled on a day-to-day basis. You know, Rick was just a little bit more uh, familial, maybe a little bit more, you know, kind of like your dad or your favorite uncle or something like that. Whereas, you know, smart came in and it was just a little more ruthless. And that, I remember a lot of people in that program that first year just saying, man, this jerk, this bleepity bleep, this, you know, because he's in there busting skulls and changing the program around because the way they had, he tried to tell them, listen, guys, the way you've been doing it is what you're used to. And guess what? It's not winning championships. It's just not consistently winning championships. And so they took a couple lumps that first year and then boom, this season, really good football team. And then boom, you sign one of the best signing classes any of us have ever seen on paper. So it does. Sometimes you do have to take a step backward before you take a step forward. And no one wants to hear that, but you know, you hear this in baseball, too. Uh, obviously, as a Cubs fan, I know, I know this quite well, that for the longest time in baseball, they said you don't get better by kind of, you know, staying where you are. You get better a lot of times by blowing it up, starting from the bottom, and then coming back up. You can actually get to the top quicker by doing it that way. So there are different ways to handle th- things in different sports, but I think we can all agree that just because your first step isn't necessarily a step forward does not mean that the next step – won't be good. I mean, it could mean that the next step is a big step forward. We see this in all kinds of programs. Yeah, and that's that, that's that's going to be interesting this year because I, I think Tennessee is is not in a position to really. But you can't fall back from where they were last year. I mean, it's possible, I'm sure, but possible, highly unlikely. Yeah, but that this first step still might not be a big step forward, and that's that's okay given where Tennessee is. But I think that's that's something people are going to have to remember: is don't call it year zero. But that first step might not be, still might not be a very pleasant one because of where this roster is at Tennessee, and and yeah, you can compare it to some of these situations at other schools. Um, but it's it's a it's a unique situation because Tennessee's never been, never gone uh, four and eight, never had eight losses in a season. So you're in uncharted territory here, and how you bounce back from this is obviously gonna gonna play a big role in how quickly you can turn things around. Here's one to me that people are not talking about at all. Because, again, I can understand why this is off the radar of most Tennessee fans. But when you look at this, the situation with Barry Odom at Missouri, first-time head coach, takes over a program that had gone 5-7 and seven overall and 1-7 and seven in the SEC under Gary Pinkle, who did a great job there. But eventually, you know, you go somewhere long enough, eventually it's just not going to work anymore. And there were some other things off the field, whatever, and that, that situation was not good by the end of his tenure. Then Odom steps in. He goes four and eight overall, two and six in the SEC in his first year. So they take a at least a one little step back, but they do win an extra SEC game. So they're about the same as they had been. And then in year two, seven and six overall, four and four in the SEC. They're going to a bowl game. And if you remember, there were a lot of questions about did Odom have any idea what he was doing? You know, was this guy just a you know a guy who never needed to be a head coach? He's sitting there, you know, scalding reporters, doing kind of the the ignorant things that that a lot of first-time head coaches do. And then it looks like it's going just in a terrible place. And then, lo and behold, that team starts winning four or five games in a row his second year out of nowhere, and it does take advantage of coaches that were getting ready to be gone, The you know, your Bielema's and your Butch Jones and and played Florida in the first week after, you know, um, McShark had had been dismissed. McShark. And and then – I see what you did there. But that situation to me looks like another one. And if you're looking for a track record, you know, Tennessee fans are saying, wow, maybe this will be like the the ones at Alabama or Georgia. And those would be best case scenarios. If you're looking at what's the most reasonable scenario in terms of where is the baseline, you got to, if you do it better than Missouri did it, that's okay. Because I think the way Missouri did it is about the least common, it's, it's like the least good but acceptable version of what you can do to rebuild because you're in your second year. You've obviously improved it. You've gone to a bowl game. You've gotten to 500 in the SEC, and they're doing it without these recruiting classes that I'm sure Tennessee is going to get. So that I think you're looking at is maybe not the worst-case scenario, but you're looking at is the least acceptable scenario maybe. 
I, I, uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of you if you're going in order. Who's next on your list? Uh, the next would be another one that I think uh, could very well be. Is it w- South Carolina? The one that I think is maybe the model Tennessee needs to. If, if Tennessee is able to do what Muschamp has done at South Carolina, then that to me is people talking about, you know, Bama and Georgia, that's where you want to set the bar. Okay, I got no problem with that. Historically, Tennessee, great program, all that, yada, yada, yada. Eventually. If you want to talk about what's much more realistic but really good, I think you look at South Carolina. We all know that the year before he got there, Spurrier uh, unceremoniously exits after a slow start, and then they bring in Sean Elliott as the interim coach, and the Gamecocks go 3-9 and nine overall, 1-7 and seven in the SEC that season. Next year, Will Muschamp comes in, gets to six and six in the regular season, loses the bowl game, goes six and seven overall, three and five in the SEC. Then year two, nine and four overall, five and three in the SEC, and beat Michigan in a January first bowl game. That would be really, really good. Yeah, and I, and I think I think with what you can say about Muschamp, his first two years at South Carolina is he's done more with less. He's gotten yes. the most out of his roster, uh, and he was he, he did a, like. Jeremy Pruitt is he you know Muschamp did not inherit a very good situation in terms of the talent on the roster um, I think there was a lot of turnover on that staff from from the way that Steve Spurrier or on that roster from the way that that Spurrier left recruiting classes weren't great nope. uh, I mean you you look at their first year they were playing a bunch of young kids uh, they had they were so bad at quarterback they had to take a red shirt off Jake Bentley that turned out to be a really savvy move and really saved their season but um I think if you're looking at coaches that have done more with less in, in the past two or three years in the SEC, I think Muschamp and Dan Mullen are the two guys that have that that fit that bill the, the most. And that's what I think that's what Jeremy Pruitt and the staff are going to have to do these, at least these first couple of years is they're going to have to do more with less because I think this is, again, this is a roster. I don't think it's as, in, as bad a shape as it was when Butch Jones took over, but I don't think it's that far off. Yeah, and, and, I think you've got some nice players. I think yep. you've got some Trey Smith, some Nigel Warriors. You've got some guys that have the potential to be good. Ty Chandler, Garantano. Callaway, so on and so forth. But you look at this offensive line situation, you look at this cornerback situation, those are all like worrisome things. And they're just going to have to kind of find a way to outplay the sum of their parts these first couple of years until they are able to recruit more guys like J.J. Peterson and, and, and those types of players. Yeah, that, that's where I think people are going to have to to kind of temper their expectations a little bit. I think there's this thought out there among a lot of fans that this roster is in much better shape than it was when Butch Jones took over, and I, I don't think the gap is as big as no. people might want to believe. I, I, I think this team is left, like you said, Patrick, with some good pieces. You've got guys like Trey Smith that are going to be NFL players. There are a few of those on the roster. You've got some other guys who have proven they can be at least reliable starters and then beyond that, you don't really know how good you are. Uh, I, I think there are, there are a lot of pieces on the on the roster that could be could be built into something more than they have been so far, and maybe that's where Jeremy Pruitt and his staff can make a, a bigger impact in year one. Um, you know, we'll have to see about that, but I, I can't I can't put that kind of expectation on them though, because from what we've seen from these players, there's no reason to think that they're that they're bringing back that much uh, to where they can immediately be you know anything resembling a contender in the SEC certainly. So I I just think they're not they're they're not really that close and they that they showed that I think with or at least the this coaching staff doesn't believe it's that close by the fact they've gone after junior college guys to try to help plug some holes in the roster that they have right now and they're still looking for possible graduate transfer help because they see some just just massive holes in this roster that still have to be addressed before they really can can kind of get started on on truly rebuilding this thing the way they want to. Yeah, I think a couple of quick points there. One, I think that this staff is under, or I've been led to believe that this staff, uh, or people close to people on this staff have indicated that there might be somewhere between 15 and 20 pretty good players on this roster in terms of the guys can fit what they want to do. 20 or 25. Think, yeah. Okay. We'll say low end 15, high end 25. Yeah. Somewhere in there of guys that they feel like they really like uh, as players. And, and what, here's what I like about that Muschamp thing and why I think if you're Tennessee, if you can follow this path, this is the way to do it. When Muschamp got there, they had been, kind of been fun and gun there. They had a couple good defenders uh, that were in the state that they've been able to recruit, Clowney and those types that were good players. Um, but there had been a lot of a lot of offense and some stuff on those teams. And when Muschamp got there, he said, listen, guys, um, 
we don't necessarily have some of the talent that other people have right now. What we're going to do is we're going to be tough. We're going to be really good on defense. We're going to prioritize that. We're going to keep ourselves in games that way. We're going to execute on special teams, and we're going to keep ourselves in games by doing that. And I think if you're Tennessee, that when you look at Muschamp came in, South Carolina defensive guy, you got Pruitt coming into Tennessee, defensive guy. You come in there, you hire some good guys on offense, let them do their thing, but you spend a lot of your time on being as good as you can possibly be on defense, and you just give yourself a chance to win by doing that. And even you even go back to their first year, you know, they beat Tennessee. That was the big game. But there were other games, really other than that Clemson game, South Carolina's first season under Muschamp, they really weren't blown out of any games. There were some games that were yep. lopsided that maybe they added some cosmetic scores at the end to make it look better. But they were they were in a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just, you know, I think that's a reasonable expectation. I was asked on our board this week about, you know, w- what can you say about this first season? I think you'll see there will be some, some rough games. Tennessee will take its lumps. You know, you got, you got to, you got to play Georgia on the road. You got to play Alabama at home. You got to go to Auburn. Yeah. Those are all really good teams that have been recruiting as good as anybody in this league. Um, and there'll be, there'll be days where you're encouraged, but you leave frustrated. There'll be, you know, I think Tennessee will keep itself some games that maybe their underdogs in, and there will be games where maybe they, they beat somebody they're maybe not supposed to. So that's sort of how a lot of first year first years for new coaches go, especially in a situation like this where the roster is what it is. And I look at it like this. It's kind of the way I looked at, at last year's team and, and the reason I didn't – I probably gave them too much of the benefit of the doubt, obviously, in hindsight. I think because, a lot of us did. Yeah, because we, we just assumed a lot of those guys who had never started before would step forward and would – would at least come close to living up to their expectations as, as prospects. And so far that hasn't happened for some of those guys. The, the, the team was not the sum of its parts, uh, or at least what they were thought to be. So uh, I, I think the thing you can say is that they've, they've got some guys that have potential, but there are a lot of guys who aren't going to fit what the staff wants. And, and I think especially the defensive line, you know, that they've got a lot of pieces that, that probably they, they would not choose to recruit necessarily if they were if they were going after these guys and starting from scratch they've got an offensive line that needed all sorts of immediate help they've got a cornerback situation that's sort of a mess that linebackers that probably don't fit what they want exactly even running backs I'm not sure they have exactly what they would want there physically and, and just in terms of skill set so uh quarterback we'll we'll see over time what the staff ends up recruiting there so there, there's really not any position group though to kind of compare it to last year that I would say this team is above average by SEC standards. Because you just lost some of your best players. You, you lost John Kelly and Rashawn Golden and Khalil McKenzie on top of everything that, that you have that's kind of a question mark in this team. You've lost some of your best players. So I think across the board, I'm not sure there's any position group I can point to that looks above average by this conference's standards. If yeah, you, I don't, I don't if think you, there is one. If you say, what is Tennessee's best position group, it's not a clear answer. Yeah. I think linebackers are, maybe, but. They've got a chance to be that. That could be interesting. Uh, I like the linebackers. I would, I would maybe throw in. Uh, this will sound crazy, probably. I, I would maybe throw in wide receiver with what they have coming back. If Jawan mm. Jennings, you throw it in the mix. Yeah, if Dog's back. Uh, and even if he's not, you've got Marquez Callaway and Brandon Johnson with another year of experience. You know, you take Tyler Bird out of the equation, maybe to throw him into the secondary. But there's still at least some pieces who have played there. I, I could at least see that as potential, maybe running back also. Just I, I, I like Ty Chandler. You know, we'll we'll see what this staff does. I, with I him. like Timmy Jordan in this system, maybe being a being a downhill guy. I think he's got a chance to be. I'm not saying a star. I just think a pretty solid player. Yeah. So so we'll 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 see about that. But yeah, like you said, there's no clear cut answer on what this team's best position group is. You know, maybe it turns out to be safety. Probably not cornerback. Yeah. Probably anything but cornerback, honestly. But um, but they've at least got hey, they've got some guys there that could work. Uh, some you know, warm we'll, bodies. Yeah. We'll see if Tyler Bird, you know, if that experiment works out, if that ends up being what they what they do. We'll see if anybody else gets a look at cornerback. He he left open that multiple guys could move. Spots. I think we all feel pretty decent about Schamberger, don't we? That he can be yeah. a decent player. Now, now the question is, what do you do beyond that? That's, I wonder if Theo Jackson gets a look there this spring. I, I think that's a real a possibility. Chance. Yeah. I think that's uh, he he fits physically what they want there, and he's six a pretty, one one seventy eight. Pretty good athlete, as we've seen. So yeah, I. I was led to believe coming out of high school that was even a possibility. Tennessee didn't give him much of a look there, though. I think this staff tries to give him a look there. I also wonder if Cheyenne Labruza maybe yeah. gets a look there since I think he so was, too. after he was moved to safety last year. you got to be good 
there to do what Pruitt wants to do on defense because Pruitt is more aggressive naturally. And I've heard this from people in the Alabama program that Pruitt, when you take Kirby as a defensive play caller, Saban and Pruitt, Pruitt is by far the most aggressive of those three in terms of what he wants to do defensively. He, he's more attack-minded uh, than sometimes a lot of those other guys are. Not that the other two sat back, but that Pruitt really liked to bring heat. And so uh, – I, I think the position group that's really going to be maybe the most – I mean, there's, there are several that could really determine the way this team goes. But I think the one that maybe could give them a chance to be better than people think if it can actually live up to standards – I mean, cornerback's a big one, but – I think the defensive line is really going to determine a lot about this team. If you're not good up front, this defense isn't going to have much of a chance to work. Yeah, and they're, they're going to be throwing a lot of things against the wall there to see yeah. if they can find some some kind of combination and, that sticks. And I don't know that this staff is really sold on Jonathan Kongbo. We'll see what they think of Kyle Phillips this spring. You know, are those guys definite starters? And if they are, how are the, how do they use them? The more Con- the closer they move to the line of, to to the center, the more I like them. Yeah, the closer they are away from the edge, or the farther they are from the edge, that's the more yeah. I like them. And I know we saw Kongbo doing what looked like linebacker drills in a video he post on, posted on Twitter. You know, if he wastes his time Don't thinking if he wastes his time thinking he's going to be an edge rusher, I think he's going to be disappointed with his role on on this team. But uh, we'll see how they handle those guys. But, yeah, aside, inside, make money. aside from Shy Tuttle, though, I really don't know that you have anybody there on the defensive line that you really feel is proven and that you know is going to contribute a lot this year. So that's a, that's a big competition to watch. And if that group can be okay, then that gives your secondary at least a chance to settle in and everything. But you've got to start with stopping the run. You know, guys, there's only one SEC transition that we have not discussed yet. And it is we'll go uh, just down Interstate 40 to Patrick Brown's beloved Nashville, Tennessee, and talk about the Vanderbilt Commodores, Derek Mason. Obviously, this situation is a bit of an outlier because he had to take over for one of the very best coaches in Vanderbilt history, a guy in James Franklin who, say what you will about him, uh, he won there. And, and did he win with Bobby Johnson's guys? Yeah, he did, but he still went in there and won games at a higher clip than Vanderbilt had in a long, long time. And he's done pretty well for himself at Penn State, I'd uh, say. Obviously, obviously, yes. And and so you look at that, before the year before Mason took over, 9-4 and four overall, 4-4 four and four in the SEC. Uh, Mason's first season, 3-9 and nine overall, 0-8 oh in the SEC. So took a, took a, a, took a pretty, pretty big leap backward there, pretty, pretty far, pretty big step back. Uh, year two went forward just a little bit, 4-8 and eight overall, 2-6 and six in the SEC, and since then kind of been fighting, Vanderbilt has. Uh, did get to go to the Independence Bowl recently and lost to NC State. So Mason's kind of clawed back a little bit, and he's, he's done a better job, I think, becoming more comfortable with his his role as a head coach and and again you look at Pruitt and you say what's this what's this mold here another guy defensive coordinator never been a head coach and steps into a situation and I think we could all agree that that Mason made a lot of mistakes early in his career at Vanderbilt as the head coach that he's now started to, to sort of correct and move forward from and they're doing a, a little bit better job there now but uh, I don't want to – I hate to pin this on you, D-Mace, but uh, that might be the worst-case scenario at Tennessee that you that you're just – that you make this move and it's a guy who's not comfortable being a head coach and he sets you back before you start going forward. Yeah, and I, I'll say this for Derek Mason too. He, he Go ahead. I was going to say he made some mistakes early on in his tenure at Vanderbilt that I thought showed he didn't know what he was getting into. Correct. But he's – because he's kind of ignored, not ignored, but he hasn't really gotten heavily involved in in-state recruiting the way James Franklin did. There haven't really been many battles between Tennessee and Vanderbilt, frankly, in recruiting. And that's, I know that's more what Tennessee is accustomed to in-state, but I thought Vanderbilt still had a chance to to get a foothold in-state. They've done it elsewhere. They've done it by evaluating well, and they've done it across the country. And so, I mean, he just had a top 45 recruiting class nationally, which is not bad uh, at Vanderbilt. And I I think he's at least shown a model for couple, sustaining couple it. A couple four-stars went in there and plucked, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, and, and Will, he, he's shown a model for sustaining it and an ability to recruit better than I thought he would. So he's that I, I didn't think we'd be talking about, what is it, year four now under Derek Mason? I, I didn't think we'd be talking about that at one point because yep. I, I thought it was off to a pretty bad start. So credit to him for uh, figuring out a, a, a formula that sort of works. Yeah, yeah. and I don't, I don't mean to to, to – to, to throw salt on the guy or anything like that. But I mean, I think it's, we all understand that he made some mistakes. I think he's even, he's admitted it. You know, he took more of a, uh, a hands-on approach with the defense and he decided that's, that's where I'm good. I'm going to go ahead and do that. Uh, he, he changed offensive coordinators and found something that worked a little bit better. Uh, they, they've just, they, they've gone back to kind of who they are 
And I think that's a good thing to see. Yeah, and you, Ryan, you touched on the recruiting rankings. Uh, Vanderbilt was outside the top 50 in the last two classes. This class, they go up all the way to 41st. They were actually finished ahead of both Missouri and Arkansas. Yep. Uh, so that's, you know, that, and that didn't include a guy that they, they brought in that a lot of Tennessee fans were open to see the Vols go after, and that's Rutger Reitmeyer. Is that Reitmeyer. Reitmeyer. Uh, guy that played at Lipscomb. Lipscomb, yep. Went to Oregon, transferred. And he's he's obviously moved down too. So that he's not included in those rankings. So that's another former four star that they can throw out on the defensive line. So yeah, I mean you and plus he's you know he, he's two and two against Tennessee. That's pretty good for Vanderbilt coach. Shout well, out to Butch Jones. Here's what we're getting down to, guys. <laughs> in in summation, I got Ryan on that one. In, 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 what we we didn't even mention that Will Muschamp is Butch Jones' father. So yeah, that's why we need Grant on the football but, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, I'm sorry. Show him his proper title. That's Mr. Jones. Okay, that's Mr. Jones. Show him some respect. That's he, he's Butch Jones' father. Now, here's the uh, I guess what we've what we've built to here. What after looking at all of this, and we've already discussed a lot of the reasons Tennessee is similar or dissimilar to these very specific situations that we've mentioned. So now that we've kind of put all that together, in, in in quick fashion here, what is reasonable for Tennessee right now, looking historically at the way things have gone in the SEC recently and the hire Tennessee just made, what is reasonable? I, I think getting to a bowl game in year one would be a good step. Now, I'm not saying you should have a parade for it. You shouldn't celebrate it. Six and six, Tennessee should never be good enough. Yes. But it, I think if you get to a bowl game in, in year one, that's something that Tennessee can build off. And I know a lot of Tennessee fans don't want to hear that. They've been waiting forever, it seems like, for to, you know to have a, a team that could legitimately compete for a championship. Uh, some of Butch Jones' teams were close to that, but were, were disappointments and let, you know, were letdowns there. But if they're able to get to a bowl game in, in year one with this roster, I think that will have been a, a quality coaching job, potentially, considering the schedule that, they, that Tennessee's playing. Um, and I think it's something that, that you can build off of and you can sell to recruits to have a big 2019 class, which can be your uh, the class that really gets the turnaround going. Remember, Tennessee was 4-8 and eight last year, and yes. I think five of their eight SEC losses were by 18 or more points, so it's not like they were... They weren't close. They weren't close. Now, part of that is because I don't think the team itself is that bad. I don't think the roster is that bad. I think the coaching job last season was that bad. Plus, at one point, it got off the rails and it was hopeless. Uh, especially offensively, where it was just broken from top to bottom. So it's not like Tennessee fans, you know, you, you want to compete with Alabama and Georgia. First of all, you, you've got to take a step before you, you got to run, you, you got to walk before you can run. And so I think if they're able to show that they can walk this year, if you're able to beat Vanderbilt, Kentucky, if you're able to beat South Carolina, uh, on the, is that game, that game's on the road. Yeah. And Missouri. Missouri's another game with Drew Locke coming back, with Derek Dooley making his illustrious return to Neyland Stadium. That's right. Maybe we'll see him in the press box. <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I don't know what Missouri's assistant coach interview policy is, but we're going to try like hell to get a Derek Dooley <laughs> podcast at some point. Uh, be like, come on. Come on, Double D. For all time's sake, let's do this. Let's uh, do this. Let's but, do this like Brutus. But come those, on. But those are the games that Tennessee, I think, has to win. Those, those are the games. I think West Virginia is a toss-up. I know that's a tough game. I think it's probably tougher because Will Greer's coming back for, for the Mountaineers, so that's going to be uh, – you know, there's going to be so many, like – referendums made after that first game. If, if Tennessee plays badly in that game or plays really well, it's going to be like, Pruitt's the next coming of Philip Fulmer. The, the, or if he's not, he's duly 2.0. It's Florida gonna, game, too. There's going to be such an overreaction. That's a, you know, Florida's a game at home. Because that, they were bad last year also. And that's, that's a game you could potentially get yeah. if you're Tennessee. So there, it could go many different ways. So if you get six, seven wins, I think that's a good first step. I think I think six is where people. This is where fans will change their minds on this by the summer. They always do. They always kind of the, optimism. The, the, I, I, was, yeah, I see eight or nine. Yeah, the win projection <laughs> creeps up by one or two. I, then you're sitting there on the Tennessee River, or, you know, or not long before the home opener, pounding a lot of domestic beverages, and then you go, you know what? I think this team. I think this team can run the table. <laughs> So, so that's Look where out. it, it, build, it builds Kirby. to that. Yeah. You're going to hear some summer projections of eight and four, and that's where I think it just gets a little bit optimistic. I, I, here's where I am with this team. I think they, like I said, I don't see a position group that looks above average by SEC standards. That's a tough recipe to win in the SEC. And on top of that, I think this is a pretty good coaching staff that Jeremy Pruitt has built, but there are a lot of variables in here that are going to take some time to figure out. And that starts with a first-year head coach, a first-time full-time play caller in Tyson Helton, 
and a first time, at least at a major college program, defensive coordinator in Kevin Sherrod. And a lot of cooks in the kitchen on defense, too, yeah. which I'm, I'm fascinated because if this defense doesn't start out the way they want to, you're going to have Pruitt as the head coach. You're going to have Shear. You're going to have Rump. You're going to have Rocker. You're going to have a lot of a lot of a lot of egos in that room. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean if that defense isn't isn't playing well, you're going to have a lot of good defensive coaches who might have different ideas about how to fix it. And so they're going to have to make sure that thing is managed properly. I imagine Pruitt seems like the kind of guy who can get people in line. He, he can kind of tap the shoulders and be like. You know, check check this, check this. You see the stripes? Respect it. But uh, I do think that that could be an interesting development. But I think people need to – I think fans if, – if I'm a Tennessee fan going into this season, I think, you know what, this is a new coach. This is a team that was not very good last season. Let, let's try to set the bar at six. Let's just get to six. Don't be frustrated by losses to the big programs. Show up. Be as supportive as you can, you know, because that team's going to need it, basically. I'm, I'm going to tell you, that team's going to need support at Neyland Stadium to, to win some of those games. And you go in there with that mindset, and you go into it open-minded, and you say, you know what, uh, let, let's, just, let's just get this thing back on the tracks a little bit. And, and, and I say six and six being the kind of the, that, that should be the expectation. That's not to say there's no scenario where you, where you steal a seventh or, or, or even things fall your way completely and you win eight. I just think the expectations got to be reasonable. And I, I say it's six because I think five and seven is as much in play as seven and five for this team. I, I yep. think there are that many swing games and there are that many things that could go wrong. I mean, we don't know what the quarterback situation is going to look like, you know, that how much, how much of a step forward can Jarrett Garantano take? How much of a step forward can his pass protection take, which was a mess last year, which kind of disrupted the entire offense? And then, yeah, you take away John Kelly, Rashawn Gold, and Khalil McKenzie, all those things. There there are a lot of reasons to look at this team on, on paper and think, sure, they could finish last in the SEC East again. Yeah, th- there's, too many, there's too many things that have to go exactly right for this team to even get to like eight wins, I think. And, yeah. that, and that you're talking about Garantano being really good. You're talking about the offensive line getting better. You're talking about Ty Chandler being a thousand plus yard rusher, or, you know, you're talking about uh, guys like Kongbo and Phillips finally living up to the hype on defense, Kirkland being healthy, you know, finding a second cornerback who can do anything. There's just so many things that if any one of them breaks down, then you're taking on water pretty quickly. And your depth and, might be shaky again. And that's that's where the lack of wiggle room really hurts because there's just so many dominoes. It's like watching one of those Ocean's Eleven movies, and if every single thing doesn't fall into place exactly the way it needs to when it needs to, um, you're, you're going to be hurting. The whole thing's going to fall apart. And so that's why I think you, you look at it and you set the bar, six wins, acceptable. And I think five wins, it would never be acceptable. But if it's five and seven and it's competitive five and seven and you're yeah. in a lot of those games and you just you don't have depth, so you fall apart in the fourth quarter a little bit, it's not bad coaching, it's not anything else, it's just being out-athleted, then you can live with that. Uh, but anything six wins plus, I think, is a really good first step. If you, if you find yourself getting optimistic, just go look, just go look at the guys on the offensive line that are coming back. And just pretend – well, you can't take Trey Smith out of the equation, but – Remember that this offensive line had Trey Smith last year, and he was great. He was pretty good, and it didn't matter. Could anyway, have been drafted after his freshman year, good. Yeah. yeah, the offensive line was still a mess because it's it's you know it's five guys working as one. So I mean, if you're even at this point, if you're trying to slot who your starting offensive linemen are, I mean, it's like really hard. Who's your Who's your center right now? <laughs> I mean, Riley Locklear. The first question to maybe, me. The first maybe. question to me is where are you going to put Trey Smith because he's your right. best guy. You got to put him in his I, best position. I think they might like to put him at left guard where he was. Well, see, th- that's the thing. Like, you might want to, if you wanted to play him at tackle, and that you're chan- like, that, that, that's they, why that chance hall injury just hurts so much. Yep. It, then you're like, well, who are you going to put at guard? Mm-hmm. I mean, are your guards Trey Smith and Ryan Johnson right now? Yeah, yeah it's like uh, is, is you know it, I would assume is Carvin. What are they going to do with him? I think he's probably a guard first, right? I think you got to give maybe him or someone else a look at right tackle because that's the position you've got to figure Jameer out. Johnson, if, I think, is definitely a tackle. If right? Tra- yeah, and if Trey Smith is at left guard, I think you've got to find out who can play right tackle this spring. That's a, that's a top priority. I mean, I think Locklear could be your center. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably my first I mean, guess. Ryan Johnson, or, or maybe. Ryan Johnson, but he's yeah. you know he's six six. I don't know if they want to play a six yeah. six guy at center. We saw how that worked out with Lockley Thomas. Lockley six 6'5 himself, I think. Yeah, it's like it reminds He's a squatty 6'5", though. Yeah. He doesn't It reminds like... me of I covered an FCS program once that had a historically bad defense. 
I'm talking like 48 points a game allowed. Like one playing defense. Like South and Siri would would think it's a yeah, bad defense. Playing badly, playing as badly as you can possibly play. And I was ta- doing some position preview type type stuff for the following season. And I remember the coach told me, uh, and he didn't tell me off the record until the very end, which made it suck. Because you know the good news is uh, the whole D line's coming back. The bad news is that whole bleeping D line is coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, the, and then he looked at me and went off the record. I was like, oh, that, such a great quote. That's one of the most overrated things in college football is returning starters. Yeah. You could have 22 starters back, but if you went 4-8 and eight last year, is that a good thing? Good news is the whole O-line's back. Bad news is that whole bleeping I mean, O-line is back. But then, I mean, at tackle, is you know, is Drew Richmond still your left tackle? Is, is Marcus Tatum, what's, you know, is he going to be what they want at this tackle? I think Richmond's probably the left tackle because at least he's <laughs> shown that he can go out there and yeah. – not get blown apart every single snap. Tatum's a big piece of that offensive line. What what he can do this year, if if he can actually be the right tackle, if the that new makes strength it, coach. Yeah, well, that, that and it's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. But that's the other thing I wanted to point out. Not only is this team, not only are you trying to get rid of whatever culture problems you had last year, while also bringing back Jawan Jennings, which is another story in and of itself. But you're trying to get rid of those culture. Just throw issues. him in. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. So you're trying to fix all that stuff. Whatever went wrong last year, get that in place. And on top of that, you're also having to get over what might have been the biggest mistake of Butch Jones's tenure, the handling of their strength and conditioning program in 2016. I think it was the biggest mistake. Yeah. And and you you took a step toward fixing that last year with Rock Gullickson, but it didn't show. You didn't have enough time to fix it. So this is year two after that debacle in 2016. You've got a you're you're establishing a culture in the weight room because that's where your offseason culture really starts. And you're trying to get guys physically where they need to be when they, when you as a staff, I don't think, believes they're anywhere close to where they need to be physically. <laughs> so you've got a lot of work to do in the weight room. Small football team. Yeah. And, and in 2019 is where you're probably going to see the most gains. This year, it's kind of laying the foundation for that. So that's another thing that makes it hard this year. Two most popular guys in any college football program. One is the backup quarterback. Two is the new strength and conditioning coach. Because the new <laughs> you know strength what? and conditioning coach is always the most cutting edge. Awesome. It's basically – they will make it seem like the previous – guy no matter how good he was or how bad no he was, idea th- he was they'll make doing. it seem like the previous guy just had him like throwing rocks at each other in a room <laughs> like you know they're just well, pick up boulder roll downhill you but, know and the new guy comes in oh he's got all this, this technology all this stuff i don't i don't think i don't think Fitzgerald's doing much technology right now i think he's got him doing a lot of free weights I, yeah I think and, he ditched a lot of the machines that were in there and i i think to to your point though wes i think you're you're going to hear You've heard so much about that that I think you're going to hear a lot of fans this offseason that aren't buying it at all. That are going to be skeptical because they've seen so many new strength coaches roll through here that they're like, you know what? I'm excited about Fitzgerald, but I'm going to wait and see how they look this year because I'm not. I'm tired of giving up uh, or putting all these expectations on the guys yeah. and not being rewarded. But, I mean, it's you, funny because they'll be like, hey, we got the new NFL, got the NFL strength coach of the year. I'm like, last year you also had a <laughs> NFL strength coach of the year. It doesn't always work. Well, it just makes it just makes it even more clear that it depends on who is telling the strength coach what to do is what really matters. I and think the buck the buck stopping where it stops is a problem. And, yeah. and then you, again, you look at this offensive line. I mean, you even look at guys like Ollie Lane. He he shouldn't have to come in and play right away. Which which guy was he on Hoosiers? No. But he had to be. He, he was. On, he's he probably w- gonna have to be on the travel roster. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna Ollie travel Lane nine played, to ten guys, we're talking about what? Wes, we're having a real discussion here. If you'd but, let us talk, potentially just eleven. I'm muting myself. <laughs> potentially just eleven scholarship offensive linemen. We'll see if they add anyone from the you know the grad transfer ranks or anything like that to help out. It, that that's the variable here. We still don't know. If maybe they look around and can find someone as a grad transfer who could come in and start right away. That, that's we don't know, and that could that could make things a lot better looking. But, yeah, otherwise you're looking at a two-deep that no question includes Jerome Carvin somewhere, that no question includes Jameer Johnson somewhere, and, and we'll see if even someone like Tanner Antonuti is in the two-deep. I mean, that, that's where you are right now, where true freshmen have to be counted on for legitimate depth. And K-Ron Calvert. And I yeah. think the last half kind of liked him. I think yeah. he had some upside. but And I think K-Ron, it sounds like he's had maybe some uh, difficulties coming off that surgery last year to where we'll, we'll see if he's out there this spring. It would be good if he could get back out there, but I'm not sure that's so, a so definite. You're looking at maybe having eight or nine scholarship guys on your yeah. offensive line like the entire spring. That's almost that's just really hard. It does, it does your defensive line no good. And and everyone wanting to see and, a full-blown yeah. scrimmage for the spring game, um, just keep that in mind. You don't have two <laughs> offensive lines right now. Well, you do if you've got guys like – Joe, uh, yeah, if you Joe throw in Keeler Joe Keeler and, and all those walk ons, I suppose Joe, you do <laughs> all those walk ons, Ryan. Just but just crapping on the walk ons, <laughs> well, they just, I mean, they just are, they're just walk ons. So if you want to throw those guys out there, and Ro- Royal, Royal Asimbo says you can take that and shove <laughs> it. So if you want to throw, have a matchup of Jonathan Kongbo against Joe Keeler or whatever for, for uh, ones versus ones or, or whatever in the spring game, 
go right ahead, and then you might not have a healthy quarterback by the end of it. Wes, you can talk now. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm back unmuted now. And by the way, he really there, did turn off his mic. There was some low hanging fruit there when you talked about having an offensive line too deep with Ollie Lane and Tanner Antonuti, which I'm saying if you, you can't do that because you're opening yourself up to a whole lot of jokes if your two deep offensive line has guys named Ollie Lane and, and Tanner Antonuti. I don't think they're sitting there in Tuscaloosa going, man, those guys are terrifying. You, you hear their names and you're like, ah, come on, it'll be all right. Uh, you can send your hate no, mail talk, to talk about reading a book by its cover at West Rucker two four seven on Twitter. What is it? West Rucker twenty four seven at gmail dot com. You, you, you know you wouldn't you would look West at the name West Rucker dot com. Pick any of them. You look at the name Tony Allen and you wouldn't think anything, but then you think of Tony Allen, the grindfather. See, you take people by surprise. <laughs> so that's the plan. It's kind of like a Trojan horse. The, I think the, no. You see, you're you, trying you're trying to save no, face right no, now. No, no. What, what you do is you. you you recruit an offensive line full of beasts who have really, you know, kind of uh, funny-sounding names, in which case they are your Trojan horse. You, you let them on in, and then, boom, they're, they're just pancaking you left and right. Kyler Curbison had, had, had one of those names, and he, had, he, was pretty, he was a pretty good but player. But he also went to the greatest high school in the history okay. of the world, so I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. In short, if you're expecting, uh, expecting a championship or something this year, we just gave you a bunch of reasons to probably want to slit your wrist. But you should continue reading about it every day on GoVols247.com. That's the thing. It's the journey. It's the journey, right? This is going to be an interesting year no don't, matter don't what. Don't say the P word. Don't say the P word. The process. process. <laughs> Not going there. Unless it's the Sixers. Hey, their process is working. It's true. Tennessee should focus on winning the state championship next year. They got ETSU yeah. and, get Joel and Vanderbilt. Embiid and get Embiid. That would help a lot. He could block kicks. He could. I'm just saying. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, our weekly Hoops podcast. Ramey and I will have a lot to talk about with Tennessee's game against Florida and then the Mississippi road swing, which, boy, Ramey and I are really looking forward to that. So are our families. We're, we're really looking forward to that journey. Thanks for that schedule, SEC. Also, by the way, thanks, SEC, for giving Tennessee, like, eight SEC road games on weekends this, this, this year. That was, that was really kind of you. It's never what happened if Roy Klamer was still alive. Is he still alive? Yes, he is. He is still alive. Patrick, any final thoughts? Uh, No.